Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. Looking at the history of the royal family, right back to the Middle Ages, we can start to see how England and how Britain and how the Western policy has been formed and where it comes from. And you can see all the, all the beginnings of the fascination with royalty as well. And, and Richard II, who's the, who's the last king in this book, uh, and is the first king in English history to introduce the, the term your majesty. So it's a French term. He rather likes majesty. He likes to sort of sit in his chair, and uh, whenever he looks at someone, you're supposed to sort of bow to the ground. And get the <laughs> this was at the point when he'd gone mad, I should say. Uh, or, or, or was in the process of going mad. I'm Alison Hope Weiner, and welcome to this edition of Media Mayhem. Thanks so much for joining us today. Today we're going to be talking about um, the Plantagenets. It's by Dan Jones, and Dan Jones has joined us. He's all the way here from England, from London. He's a historian and an award-winning journalist as well. His first book, The Summer of Blood, The Peasants' Revolt of 1381, was published in 2009. And now he is here to, and, and was quite successful, and now he's here to discuss the Plantagenets, the warrior kings and queens who made England, which is a number one bestseller and book of the year in The Observer, The Times, and The Sunday Telegraph. And it's also doing really well in the New York Times bestseller list. It's doing great, and it's, it's great to bring it to America. I mean, I wasn't quite sure if people over here would get the Plantagenets, you know, big royal medieval dynasty, but then Game of Thrones came along, so it was fine. <laughs> <laughs> it's so convenient for you. So let me ask you, how did you um, first get interested in writing this book? You were, we were just chatting, and you said your last book was on peasants, and now you're dealing with the royal family. First of all, I guess, how did you get interested? And is this something that every English kid learns in school? Um, I mean, some of this history that sort of maybe sparked your desire to go further? Uh, well, first of all, how did I get interested? I studied history at university. I ended up specializing in medieval legal history, which is kind of a little bit nerdy. Uh, Just but I, <laughs> you know, it, some people find it fascinating. There were about six or seven of us that did. Um, but. Then I wanted to broaden out, and so I came out of university. I, I wanted to keep studying the Middle Ages, uh, and I just found, and this leads on to your second question, that almost nobody really knows about the Plantagenets as a dynasty. Now, they all know about the Tudors, and I think that's something to do with the Showtime show, uh, something to do with everyone in school in the UK learning about Henry VIII and Elizabeth I, and almost nothing before. It's like history starts in 1485. So There's also a plethora of those historical fiction books that became very popular that people have read, like the Boleyns and, I mean, the Philippa Gregory series of books that kind of focus on the Tudors. Yeah, sure, right. I mean, now that you have Wolf Hall and you have, as you say, Philippa Gregory at the Boleyn Girl, there's tons and tons of historical fiction, and it's almost like people have bought in so hard to the Tudor soap opera that you don't want to learn about anything else. And I thought, well, there's actually a huge wealth of information and material and characters and stories from before that period that 
we could really we could really start to tell these stories. And it's a much longer period. It's a much bigger dynasty. And I mean, I'm obviously biased, but I think it's there's much more to it than you get from the Tudor. And it's period. an awful. It's also a very big soap opera as well. I think people should understand. I, I thought it was really interesting because uh, it, it is there is a wealth of unexplored characters. But let me ask you, how do you go about? What kind of source material do you use to write this book? I mean, what is available? Because we're going back even mm. further. And even with the two, there were bits and pieces that people can point to, but. I mean, a lot of it is certainly what we're learning here in this country is made up. I mean, it's fiction. So I mean, when I say, and I'm not comparing your book to something that Philippa Gregory wrote, because this is incredibly well-sourced and really carefully researched. So, um, and it, which makes it a different, you know, kind of animal, but although it is still really entertaining because it does have that kind of, you know, it's told like historical fiction in the sense that you're a storyteller and not just sitting there, you know, laying out the history. So what do you look to, what sources did you look to and how did you piece together what happened so long ago? Because I mean, what do you go back to, the first, I guess it's 1154 is when you start. Mm. So, I mean, how did, how did, what source material did you use? Well, look, if you go back, the, the book actually starts in 1120 with the okay. sinking of the white ship, which is like a medieval Titanic. You know, this, this ship comes out of Barfleur Harbor, headed for England, everyone's drunk, it crashes into a rock, everyone dies. And that's like half the medieval noble youth are killed on board the ship. Eventually this big civil war starts. With regards to the material, I mean, the further back you go, the less material there is and the less certainty. That's generally the case whichever historical period you're talking about. Now when you look at the Tudors, you have quite a lot of information about those people uh, in terms of much better portraiture, you know, a, a much greater wealth of surviving documents. And you don't always have that earlier in the period. You do have quite a lot in England, particularly of administrative sources, you know, records that are kept, roles of parliament, um, Legal records in particular are really helpful in terms of piecing together how government worked and politics worked in that period. Do you have birth and death registries too from the different towns? That tends I know to start a bit later. Is it later? Okay. Century. But what you do have, and, and what was at its peak probably in the Middle Ages, is monastic chronicles. So, you know, monks sitting in these um, in uh, monasteries, which of course you don't have for most of the Tudor period, um, writing chronicles. Now, they're not histories per se. But what they are are these very, very vivid accounts of everyday stuff. And that could be there was a big wind and the tower fell off the church. Or it could be like we found a big monster and it came out of the sea. And you think, well, OK, maybe not. But you also have quite often eyewitness accounts of some of the biggest events that happened. So let's take 1170. Thomas Beckett murdered yeah, on the floor. That's a great part. I a was fantastic gonna, story. Yeah. Right? So well, 11, why don't you tell the story? Go okay, ahead. OK, so the story in a nutshell, Henry II, the first Plantagenet king, um, came to the, came by the crown in England and found England a bit of a mess. I mean, politically, it was recovering from a massive, almost 20-year-long civil war. Uh, he had to deal with that. He also had this great sort of continental empire. You know, about a third of, of France was also under the English crown. And he also found relations between the church and the state in England in, in quite a parlous way. Fortunately, he had this great pal and this sort of uh, very able administrator who could help him sort this out, or so he thought. His name was Thomas Beckett. He appointed him to become Archbishop of Canterbury with a mission to go into the church and bring it into line and basically bring it into, the line, into line with the crown so that it would do what the crown told it. It didn't really work. Beckett, in fact, went into the church, had some sort of um, epiphany, some sort of strange experience where he suddenly decided, actually, I've got to do the complete opposite and stand up to the king and make his life as, as difficult as possible. 
So there's kind of a psychodrama here. Two, they really were best friends, suddenly fall out, and you end up with this long-running battle between them, a, pa a real power struggle. Uh, in which Beckett is doing everything to disobey the king. He's exiled, so England doesn't have an Archbishop of Canterbury. The Pope tries to reconcile them. The King of France tries to reconcile them. Nothing works. Eventually, Beckett goes back to England from exile in 1170, while Henry's over in, in France. And here the story gets fuzzy, depending on whom you believe. Four knights come to England at Christmas in 1170, just after Christmas, 29th of December come into Canterbury Cathedral and hack Beckett down. You know, chop the back of his head off and mash his brains into the floor of the cathedral with their boots. And you can go to Canterbury Cathedral today and still see this sort of beautiful marble pavement where, they, where this event happened. They've cleaned up the brains, I'm pleased <laughs> to say. Um, now, that story is absolutely brilliantly documented, partly because Beckett, I think, knew that martyrdom was at some point awaiting him. And he surrounded himself. Well, not only did he write a lot of letters, really angry letters, dear the Pope, I'm really annoyed with Henry II, can you come and do something? Uh, he also surrounded himself with people who turned out to be his biographers, who kept these fantastically detailed accounts of his life, mainly sympathetic accounts of his life, but what we do have is this really, really vivid picture of someone, uh, a wealth of material that you wouldn't really expect from the 12th century. And that's true, you know, I wrote the book about the Peasants' Revolt. You, you moved to the Peasants' Revolt, which was... Um, a rebellion, it's almost hard to imagine the scale of it um, today. You know, London was almost burned to the ground. Um, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, uh, not the Chancellor of the Exchequer, sorry, the Chancellor of England and the Treasurer were both beheaded. Um, this what was, precipitated that revolt? It was, a, it was in its origins a tax revolt, or rather in its immediate origins a tax revolt. There's a poll tax, the first ever poll tax. You have poll taxes here? No. Good idea. Yeah. Uh, we had, I think, I we've think had we did, though. Don't do it. No, Ever no. Bellin? I mean, in, yeah. in, in history, yeah. I mean, <laughs> history no, would suggest we're not very big on taxes. Is your people oh, know? I've heard about <laughs> it. History would suggest don't have a poll tax, right? So Margaret Thatcher tried it. Massive rebellion in London, almost burned to the ground. If she'd read, if she'd, if she'd read, read, the, if she'd read the, my book, if only I'd written it in time. Uh, if she'd read more history, she was a scientist. She would have been swayed by she it. She would have discovered that uh, in 1381, a poll tax sparked a, a massive revolt in which uh, the southeast of England rebelled. There was more to that revolt. Uh, there was a sort of sense that there was a self-interested governing elite, political and, and social elite, uh, that were ruining the country, but in their own interests. So that was all, uh, all bound up with that revolt. But if you look at the events, which were absolutely shocking, um, and were witnessed by quite a few of these monastic chroniclers, and one in particular um, from St Albans, you know, he was he was brought down to London by a party of rebels and watched it burn and watched some of the, the ringleaders of this rebellion in action, and wrote it all down. Now again, it's a uh, in this instance, it's a very unsympathetic account of the revolt. So you've got to be careful with the evidence. In, in fact, because in the Middle Ages most of the accounts belong to monastic chronicles. They always come, or from that genre of, of, of um, evidence anyway, they always come with a huge amount of bias, which you've got to try and pick your way through, as well as a huge amount of fantasy and a huge amount of this sort of strange medieval religious mindset that's very, very alien to us today. I was going to ask you about that, what role the religion played it with the Plantagenists, because it's such a big issue when we get to the Tudors. And I'm curious, I mean, because we're, we're dealing with Catholicism, and there, and there are wars with France during mm. this period. I mean, and France plays also a very pivotal role. But I'm just, I'm curious what, what the relationship was between this dynasty and, um, and, and the Pope and Rome. 
That's a big question. I mean, it sort of varies. Well, break it down Let's by break some down. of the guys, because so, I know you. It's a big part of the book. I mean, like it's mm. a big part of the stories. So, first of all, you know, we talk about Catholicism. I mean, that that's a word that implies there's something else. And really, for most of this period, there's the Roman Church, and that's that. Uh, there might be schism in the church. There might be two people both saying they're pope, and the papacy might have moved from Rome to Avignon or whatever. But effectively, the Western Church is in obedience to Rome. And so most But isn't of, that Archbishop of Canterbury throughout time like subject to the king all the time that the king is always trying to get control? I mean that sort of goes that's a story yeah. that kind of runs the gambit in London. I mean like every if the king doesn't have control of the archbishop there's trouble. So exactly. I'm just curious like uh, was besides Beckett, I mean was there a, a schism there in terms of the kings and control of the Catholic Church during the Plantagenet um, dynasty? Well it's let, what you find in the Tudor period is the king wants to control doctrine. So Henry VIII broke with Rome and then began to meddle with church doctrine because he wanted a divorce for, for political reasons but he was meddling with doctrine. That's not what you see in the Middle Ages. You have uh, the, all the big battles between the church and the crown are over a, usually over jurisdiction and appointments. So if you take King John, for example, a, a pretty good example, um, I mean, you've got to understand the church is extremely wealthy. And uh, appointing someone as a bishop or an archbishop is a very, very powerful and useful piece of political patronage. So the king, and, and this, is, this is not just in England, this is sort of common. Um, particularly in the 12th century, all over Europe, there, there are big battles between kings and popes over who gets the right to appoint to these church positions within royal jurisdictions. And one of those battles happened in King John's reign, so we're talking about 1199 to 1216, uh, and John went to effectively to war, a sort of cold war with uh, Innocent III, who was a great crusading pope, over the appointment to the Archbishop of Canterbury. And, and so John wanted one, if, if, Break it out. John wanted one candidate. The uh, electors of Canterbury wanted another. The Pope tried to mediate. John re rejected his candidate. And there was a sort of stalemate. So England was placed under interdict, uh, which means no church services are allowed. No one can be buried in consecrated ground. Normally, that's quite a powerful tool for a Pope. For the to, whole country? For the whole country. Right. Okay. And you, you know, you are sort of. You're shunned, basically, as a whole, as a country. And all your people are above ground. <laughs> and, and you can't bury the dead. <laughs> and you can't hold, and the churches are sort of shut up, and anyone who wants to get married can't get married inside a church. It can only happen in the church porch. And that sort of thing. It's, it's, it's inconvenient, to say the least. Uh, John was personally excommunicated, um, which is, you know, if you, you die, your soul's going to hell. John didn't seem to be <laughs> too bothered about that. But what it did mean was that as an excommunicate king, he was technically susceptible to a crusade against his country. So if the King of France wants to attack England, it can be a crusade because the King of England is no longer within the church. And John put up with this for the best part of a decade. There was this complete standoff. And you, you would have thought that John would have got worried about this, but for the best part of a decade, he didn't. Because whilst the Pope had no control over or, or, or was, had put England outside papal jurisdiction, John just harvested all the money from the church. He said, OK, fine, it's all coming to me. And he used that money to conquer the rest of the British Isles. So he used it in big wars against Wales, um, wars against Scotland, and to stockpile a sort of war treasury. Eventually, um, things turned against him, and he realized that he was actually about to be invaded by France. And so he went back to the Pope and said, oh, sorry, can we, <laughs> <laughs> can we make up? And they, and they did. So, so relation, the point is, relations between church and crown could be fractious in this period. But these are not generally arguments about doctrine. 
they're more about uh, jurisdiction and money. Right, right. I mean, and how did, I mean, let's talk about Henry II. He inherited the crown in 1154, and he's the first Plantagenet ruler. And how long did his dynasty last, and how did he sort of set the, uh, the, the pace for rulers that came after him? Like, how was he, uh, how did he consolidate his power, and, and how was he sort of the example for the rest of, of his dynasty since he started it all? And that's sort of where you start. Yeah, I mean, Henry came to, and inherited the throne after a long civil war between his mother, known as the Empress Matilda, and her cousin, Stephen. And, and these are both grandchildren of William the Conqueror, right. 1066. Okay. I'm drawing a little family tree on the <laughs> fingers here. And by the way, I should tell the audience, <laughs> at the beginning of this book, there is a big family tree, so you can kind of keep all the different characters straight because everybody has the same name. Or, or there's only yeah, a few. There's, there's, there's Henry, there's, Edward, you know, I mean, it's, it's yeah. There's there are fewer names. Few names, yeah. Um, so, right, so, so Henry comes to Henry, Henry, we'll talk about Henry II. Okay. Uh, Henry comes to the, the, by way of the crown in 1154, and he's not just king of England, because at this time, England is attached to Normandy following the Norman conquest. Now, as well as that, Henry inherited Anjou main terrain, so part of central France. Right. And as well Which as. It's kind of com confusing. It, it's sort of to the south of Normandy. Right. So you've got Normandy and you've got a bit of central France here. This is France. This isn't a very good map. There are good maps. There are good maps in the book. There are. Um, it's pretty clear. Everybody knows where Normandy okay. is. Okay. And as, as well as that, uh, Henry married Eleanor of Aquitaine, probably the most astonishing woman of her age, of the Middle Ages. And she brought the Duchy of Aquitaine, which is a massive chunk of southwest France. So by the time Henry became King of England, he was actually the ruler of about a third perhaps more of territorially of France, including, because he, he controlled Brittany as well, including almost the entire Western Atlantic coastline. So this is quite a tall order to, to set. Now, Henry spent almost all of his life in his reign, which was, which was quite long, until 1187, defending and well, first expanding and then defending this, this sort of empire not just against the king of France and his enemies on his borders, but eventually against his own sons, because he had a brood of four um, quite belligerent sons. <laughs> it's, it's probably an understatement. Uh, and twice during his reign, they tried to attack their own father um, in alliance with their mother the first time around um, to force him to give them bits of his empire before he died, which he adamantly resisted. When he did die, he left two sons alive. The first, uh, Richard the Lionheart. Who's uh, really quite famous in his Who's re really quite famous. He's actually the only king whose statue is outside the House of Parliament in London. Yeah, why is that? Well, what do you think? I mean, what is it about him that like makes him so memorable? It's strange because he was probably the king who had least interest in England of all the kings in, in our history. He spent very little of his time in England. Because he was off fighting the third group. He had quite a short reign. Uh, 10 years or so. He spent most of his time, or about half of his time, in uh, the Middle East fighting the Third Crusade. It's a big war against Saladin. When he came back, he was imprisoned in Germany. When he was finally released, he spent most of his time in France, defending those bits of his territory. Which is there. the reason for so many of these wars, that, that, that French territory, and especially during this time, I mean, but it goes on. Mm. It constantly, like, it, it, who's going to control it becomes like, very problematic. But go, go ahead. Well, you're absolutely right, and, and we can see it in, in Richard's reign. The control of all of these Plantagenet territories in France is, is fundamentally the issue that defines so much of politics during this period. So 
you're right, they're always fighting about a bit of France. And, and after Richard, when King John came to the throne, Normandy was lost. So 1204, Normandy was finally lost to the King of France. But even after that, and so was Anjou men in terrain in the middle. But even after that, parts of the Duchy of Aquitaine always stayed um, loyal to the English crown. Mm-hmm. And so a little later in the period, when we get to Edward III's reign, which is in the 14th century, um, there were still big arguments going on with the uh, French king over who controlled um, and, and by what rights they held, by what right English kings held this portion of southwest France, Aquitaine, right. which was right. by then sort of a rump, the Duchy of Gascony on the coast around Bordeaux. So this is really, and, and, and that then sparked the Hundred Years' War. I just was I, like, I was trying to remember, because I was like, Edward III, he's a major guy. And like, yeah, I was just like checking, okay. You're right, so we've got the Hundred Years' War, which, which starts then and, and goes on until... Um, which is horrible, that's a, yeah. It was, it was pretty horrible. I mean, you Well, there are better wars, huh? There have been better wars. <laughs> Get the War of the Roses, it's, it's a good one. We'll come to that in a minute. Okay, um, go ahead. So, this is, but this is... Uh, Edward finds a new way to frame the question, which is, is not just how do I defend this territory, but um, he actually claims to be the king of France himself as a means to defending the, um, the territory in Gascony. You might say, well, what's the point? Just let them have it. You know, they want it so badly, let them have it. But actually, con- controlling, having a, a, um, a hold in southwest France is incredibly important. There's a lot of trade goes back and forth between the south coast of England and Bordeaux. There's, so uh, that channel, it was control of the channel? It's control of the channel. Uh-huh. It's, um, I mean, there's two directions of trade in England. One, cloth trade going up and down between Flanders and England uh, to the to north, northeast. And then in the other direction, down to Bordeaux, where you know, the goods are coming up from you know, olive oil and um, salt and uh, wine. You know, these important things, if you want to have a feast or whatever. Uh, <laughs> you cannot have a You cannot feast. have a feast without, right, without I get wine. It. Well, certainly without wine. Uh, this is all coming through. There's a lot of feasts in your book. There's <laughs> quite a lot of feasts. There are quite a lot of feasts. Um, actually, feasts are very interesting because, you yeah, know, tell well, me about for some it. reason... I thought it was kind of funny. For some reason, and, and as the period goes on, I'm writing a book about the Wars of the Roses at the moment, they're even more keen on feasts. Everyone's obsessed with feasts. So you get these, these chronicles, particularly in London, when they write down, what, oh, this is what happened to the coronation. And, uh, and the, you know, it was great formal ceremonial about the king being crowned in this way and that way, and it gets more complicated over the years. And then they have the feast. I mean, these are extraordinary. And it's detailed, though. It's I very, mean, it's very like detailed. We're going to have this, and we serve that, and everybody ate that. A lot of lampreys. I know, it's you totally know, gross. Uh, yeah. A lot of fish eaten. But it'd be, well, a lot of fish eaten because there were so many feast days. Anyway, I, I see we've sort of wandered from the point. Okay, um, back to the point. <laughs> back to the point. What was the point? I can't you remember. were talking about um, uh, about the uh, the Henry. Uh, no, we were actually talking about we're getting to the War of the Roses, but we were talking about the role of France so too, the issue and of France. the different wars that were fought over French territories. Yeah, and so how that sort of defined well, a lot of this period. Let, let's take a step back yeah. and, and say that if you in writing this book over the course of the period, I came to realize there are only two things that are really fundamentally important to being a king in the Middle Ages. And one is being an effective soldier, making war, and that could, that's forward defense as well as uh, defending the coast. So making war in France is a way of defending English interests. Making war in Wales is a way of defending English interests, and the same with Scotland. And justice. And that's the, other, that's the flip side of it. You know, a king has to do two things, and it's, that's be an effective commander in the field and an effective lawgiver at home, the keeper of law and order. And the, the kings that manage to, to do those two things, no problem. The kings yeah. that fail in one or, or, wor- or the other, or worse, both, 
and you could uh, King John is a good example of this. Uh, in what respect? Why don't you well, talk a little bit about how uh, his problems? <laughs> so yeah. King John inherited the throne from Richard Richard the Lionheart uh, when he he died suddenly um, in 1199, and the war very uh, the war in France to hold together this this sort of big Plantagenet empire quickly went bad, and uh, John lost. Anjou main in terrain, he lost Normandy, uh, he was holding on to only bits of Aquitaine because his mother, Eleanor of Aquitaine, that now in her 70s, was still alive and, and commanded great loyalty from the subjects down there. No one seemed to like or trust John, for pretty good reason. By 1204, he'd lost Normandy. It was a big problem, and it's, it's not just, oh dear, I've lost some nice land across the, the continent. This is a big problem for the political class in England because their land holdings over the, the 100 years or so that had passed, 150 years that had passed up until that point, quite often straddled the channel. So there are now two masters. The, the King of France claims you're his subject for your French lands. The King of England claims you're his subject for his English lands. They both claim the land to Normandy. It's all very complicated. Uh, 1204 is a very, very important point in English history because it's the division when people make their choice. Are you going to be English? Are you going to side with the English king? Are you going to side with the French? It's also a political disaster for John, and it's a, a sort of logistical disaster as well, because he now has to spend all his time in England. And that sounds unusual. We think he's the king of England. Of course he would. Well, his father, Henry II, and his brother, Richard I, Richard the Lionheart, as we've said, spent very little time, you know, a fifth. But there's no soul. Yeah, I mean, if they're supposed to be going places, they've got stuff to yeah. do, and 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 because they've got stuff to do, because they spend so much time on the continent, England had developed in the early Plantagenet years a very sophisticated mechanical system of government based around the writ. You wanted something for the king, you wrote to his chancery, and you got a sort of formulaic response back, usually via the local sheriff, and justice was done in the king's name. Fine. Then you get a king. King John, who was very interested in the law, he was a, a, effectively a trained lawyer, his tutor had been Glanville, the, the most successful uh, or the most brilliant lawyer of the age, very, very interested in the law, but mainly interested in the law because it can make him quite a lot of money, which he needs to go and win back his continental lands. In what respect does it make money? Well, there are profits to law, you know, as there are today. Uh, you, you, know, you want a writ from the king, you want justice from so the king. So you have to get paid. You the have king to pay. gets paid the king for gets every paid. writ that he, right. okay, all right. And now what John does is he sees the system and says, well, uh, and, and there's also a system of, of feudal f fines and fees as well. So, okay, you're a nobleman, your daughter's going to, or rather the king's daughter's going to get married, he charges all the noblemen a fee. <laughs> right, that's a simple way of putting it, but there are feudal, these called feudal incidents. It's just, doesn't it work the same way too? Like in order to get married, to get permission from the archbishop and from the pope, that I mean, that they also charge a fee too, like for to give their everything. Less, okay. Everyone yeah. charges a fee, right? But, okay. Uh, but okay. when you, when you're King John and you understand the system and you also have a quite a strong need for money, you start to ramp up the fees. So what we what we see with John in his realm, taking a keen interest in this hitherto quite mechanical bu bureaucracy, John now ramps up the, the, the fees and starts to extract as much money as he possibly can from everyone in England. I mean, we've talked about the interdict in the church. He's doing the same to the barons, and he's pursuing them relentlessly. His, his Why are his enemies. coffers are low because he needs money to fight these wars? He's been fighting, to trying to fight. He, he okay. wants Normandy back. Now, right. if you're defending Normandy, fine. Normandy can pay for itself because you, you tax the well, Normandy to defend okay. their borders. Now, all the money has to come from England. So John is extracting a huge amount of money from England via the legal system, both in terms of its legal mechanics and its feudal 
aspect. And the result of doing this is he starts to really annoy and, uh, well, I mean, that's too soft a word, really upset and alienate a huge portion of the political community, by which we mean the sort of the barons, basically, the, the top rank people. The noble people. The noble people. Right. And he accumulates this huge war chest, and it's, it, it all seems fine. By 1214, he's got a vast amount of money, and he's actually made friends with the Pope again. And he's decided he's now rich enough to go and fight the enemy, King Philip Augustus of France, and win back his great continental lands. He uses some of this money to sort of buy alliances with all of Philip's other enemies. And it's all going to be absolutely brilliant, and they sail across the channel, and da 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 da, and he loses. He, he, he puts everything on black and he, it comes to bed, <laughs> if you like. Right. Uh, yeah. And he loses the Battle of Bouvines in 1214 and comes back with nothing. Right. He spent all the money. He hasn't won any Everybody's now. angry at him. He's, uh, everyone's furious, furious with him. Um, and, it's n and a rebellion breaks out. And the consequence of that rebellion, a mass rebellion of most of his barons, particularly the, the, his northern barons, against John's kingship results in a peace treaty which is now famous because it's called the Magna Carta, or Magna Carta as we call it in, in the UK. Um, now this is a peace treaty between John and his barons which has lots and lots of complicated clauses which, which are to do with setting, effectively setting the levels of, of how much John can charge people for stuff. It's called laying out what, what was customary. And this is, but, is really critical for the legal system that the English hand down to us. I mean, everything that, it, that we, it comes from this period of time. But, well, mean, we're, we're, of we're, we're approaching the 800th anniversary of Magna Carta in, um, in 2015, and quite rightly, there'll be a huge amount of celebration and thought about what Magna Carta is, what it was, what it means. At the heart of Magna Carta is a principle embodied in a couple of its clauses, uh, but which we can, we can very simply say, the king, or now the government, must obey the law, and it must observe justice. It recognises we need a king, we need one central system of unitary authority, and, and we need a lawgiver, but that lawgiver must obey the laws it makes. That's a, a simple, a really simple concept. But it's the same concept, I think, that under, underpins the Bill of Rights in this country. And it's the same principle... It well, it's, it's the same principle that underpins almost every major constitutional argument in, in Western history, almost. How do you force the king or the government to obey the law? And it's the same question you could, you could talk about if you say, well, how do we... When we look at Obama and drone strikes against US citizens, is, isn't this the law acting against its own people? And how do we hold the, the lawgivers and, and, or the government to account in this case? It's, it's, it's all part of the same It's very odd question. that people don't seem to understand that or, or to recognize. I mean, there's a small minority of people yeah. that have been upset about that kind of thing, but I think that when you're reading your book, you see sort of the seeds of of the government that we ultimately adopt and mm. and and the way in its sort of its purest form don't you mm. think under the plantagenets i mean like the very beginnings of it and and the purpose of it and and you sort of strip away all the crap you can actually see what it was supposed to do well look i, I think what you can see are building blocks being put together and and i think that's why it's so that's why i was so interested to write this book to go back to really, okay, where do the very fundamental bits of British history, and, and then that naturally feeds into American history, where do they come from and how do they come about? Why do we have Parliament, or in, in this case Congress? I mean, why? What's the point? Well, the point is because, as we see in the, in the 13th century, uh, the king wants taxes. 
how does it, okay, fine, the King wants taxes, how are they taken? Well, eventually, through a long series of wars, mainly over the principles of Magna Carta, uh, we, come to the, we come to the situation where the king gathers together representatives of the political community to have their assent to taxes. And once you've got that, then those members of the political community who gather together start to say, well, then maybe there should be some conditions. You know, you want taxes, then you reform this thing that we're kind of annoyed about over here or this thing over here. And then that body... Sort of that grand bargain. Yeah, and, that, and the then government. that body starts to have a, an institutional sense of itself over the generations. So that's, that's what's happening in the 13th century in England. In the 14th century, um, Parliament in England really now is an institution. It doesn't sit of its own accord. It's called by the king. But it has a sense of itself whenever it does meet. And Parliament is so confident by the end of the 14th century, it's starting to impeach ministers. So you can see the, you see the growth over the 250 years I've described in the book from a situation where there's no Parliament whatsoever, and the king just sort of goes around taking stuff, to a, a position where we're kind of starting to think about how that, that, that stuff should work. And then we have a parliament, and then the parliament is an institution with its own ideas about how it should operate. So then you've got the building blocks of modern Western history right there. Then you can start to understand, OK, well, th that is the first principle of a parliamentary system, is that the people give their assent to government. The people give their sort of institutionalized corporate assent to how government works. And that's a very important matter today. And if people, start to, if people start to see where these things began, then maybe the debate today becomes a, a little clearer in their minds. I totally agree with you. I mean, I think because it, it's kind of broken down and, and you've stripped away, I mean, as you said, it's mm -hmm. the earlier blocks of something, so you could see um, you know, government in its purest form and, and how much of a say, I mean, what kind of responsibilities the parliament assumes for the people mm -hmm. and, and what kind of taxes they put up with. I mean, because there is this total give and take. Mm -hmm. Who do you think was the most effective of the Plantagenet kings in working with the parliament? I mean, in, in actually like, directing them in a, in a productive way to improve the society? Well, in the book, that I, I think there are two Plantagenet kings who do really, really amazingly well. Um, one of them is in the book, and the other one's in the new books I'm writing at the moment. <laughs> so I, I split them. The first is Edward III. Edward III came to, uh, came to power in, well, his father was um, done away with. He was forced to abdicate and eventually Yeah, killed. that's another thing. I'm sorry just to stop mm. you for a second. It's really interesting about the sort of the succession is so seems so arbitrary. <laughs> who actually right. ends up in power? It's like survival of the fittest, like which son gets it? I mean, who survives? Who gets like I mean, it's it's kind of interesting. One thinks when you look at the kings that it's a much more orderly succession because I think it becomes that much more in the Tudor time than during the plant. Don't you? No, 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 do I, you I, think I, I totally disagree, disagree. Actually, I yeah. think I think what we see in, in and why this, the, the kings in this book fit together quite nicely is with, the, with two exceptions. One is okay. where uh, John inherits the crown from Richard and he's his brother rather than his son. Richard didn't have any sons for reasons we could discuss. Um, <laughs> but let's not let's go into that. <laughs> okay. uh, and the second, is, well the, the second is at the end yep. of the period where uh, Richard II inherited the uh, crown from his grandfather because his father was already dead. Otherwise, it's direct. It's okay. father son, father son, father son. It's seen that way. Well, okay. that's partly because eldest sons die. I mean, there's, there's people tend to die, and you know, before anaesthetic, it's really amazing <laughs> how easily how easy it is to die. Um, I know. I mean, really, because you you keep waiting, and then somebody. I guess that's it. Because I would expect you introduce a character and they don't make it. Yeah. Well, well what's uh, what's interesting? You know, over eight generations, this is a remarkably virile family. 
You look at the Tudors, look at the incredible problems of the 16th the century. Were, yeah, but maybe there's too much inbreeding I mean, Henry, by Henry, the time Henry we get there. Henry VIII squeezes out four children, one of them illegitimate, Henry Fitzroy. Uh, you know, two girls and a very, as, as proved, sickly boy in Edward VI. I mean, and that, that fact, that domestic fact, defines the politics of the 16th it's century. So true, yeah. The Plantagenets, much more virile. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, is that why you chose them? That's why I chose them. They're a very virile <laughs> dynasty. But look, the, you know, the thing is, we, we can talk about okay, so Edward III. We're talking about the relationship between Parliament. Right. I interrupted you. So yeah. why is Edward, Edward III is the most effective king that I've written about in this book? And I think Henry V, you know, the great king of Agincourt, who's going to appear in the, in the next book, and they're effective for the same reason. Now, I said there are two things that are very important to being a king. Be good at fighting, be good at justice. And fundamentally, Edward and Henry V later get those principles. So there becomes a sort of um, a, an unwritten compact, if you like. Edward III decides he wants to have a massive war with France, and he does. And he has this great, huge brood of children, including the Black Prince, as we now call him, his eldest son, Edward of Woodstock, who's also awesome at fighting. And the two of them go off and they bash the friends, Cressy, Poitiers, you know, these great battles that are still almost as famous as Agincourt. And yet, he, he manages not only to take with him a nobility which, in the hundred or so years up until his accession, had been become incredibly resistant to going and fighting in France. Because they were, what the hell do I want to do that for? France is over there. I, I'm fine here, thanks. Managed to take them with him, and he manages consistently, with only a couple of wobbles, to convince Parliament to pay for it all. Mm. And that's because he understands that, in order to go and make war, every time you come back, you listen to what the community of the realm wants and you reform. And you, you make sure that justice is being served, that people are living peaceably, people are prepared to pay high taxes to go and fight the French, because they think it's marvellous when you win. Um, <laughs> in I general, believe you could, they, they can keep convincing people to go. I mean, oh, it is mar yeah. it's marvellous when yeah. you win. Absolutely marvellous. Well, and Edward III is also great because in the middle of his reign, when the Black Death has, has hit Europe, killing ultimately 40% of the population, maybe higher, at the height of this, he, he comes up with this brilliant idea, which is the Order of the Garter. And it's this sort of, which is still exists today. You'll see pictures of Prince William wearing all his garter robes yeah. and looking very funny. The robes haven't changed an awful lot. It's a very, very selective club for the best sort of knights and, and, um, and noblemen who are bonded together in this sort of brotherhood, this kind of um, almost divine brotherhood. You know, they have church services together and they have a special day every year. And if you haven't been on the day, you're not allowed in the club. It's a very, very exclusive <laughs> club. Um, and it, but it, what it does is build this culture of aristocratic war making again. And they're all in it together and they all want to go and bash the French. And it really, it means the most amazing propaganda exercise ever. Because, you know, there is a way of looking at this whole period and saying, my God, would it not have been easier not to go fighting in France? Yeah, I, would it but not, I, could but we, why could we just be happy? But of course, there just seem to be some trade logistics, though, that they need to. I mean, yeah, if they yeah, would, of course, you do. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, there are, but, but but the point is, it's actually very hard for most people to convince the population to, uh, to pay for it and to come with them. Edward III manages it, and I think that simple fact is testament to his brilliance as uh, as a sort of commander and his uh, brilliance at convincing the country that when he comes back, he's going to give them law, order, and justice. It's, it's the, uh, that's the business of kingship. I mean, I make it sound simpler than it probably no, is. No, no, uh, yeah, you know, exactly. Uneasy, uneasy lies mean, the head that wears a crown, as Shakespeare said, but um, there it is. Well, I, and who's your other one? You said there's two. Oh, well, I said Henry V. He's not coming up, Henry V. Henry V. He's coming in the next book. That's the next episode. Okay. Stay tuned. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, I mean, so let me just ask you, um, 
And what other ways do you think that the history of the Plantagenets sort of informs our history, uh, informs us today about our own government? I mean, there's I saw different things, but probably most in terms of the laws and 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 because there's so much of that starting off with the Plantagenets mm. that we like adopt. What else is there about this book that sort of you think is apropos to what we're, some issues we're dealing with today in your history? Well. I mean, one of the things that that, that struck me, and I'm not, I'm not, yeah, I think it, I think it is pretty relevant right, right at the moment because people are still so fascinated with the idea of monarchy as a form of government. I mean, I go home to London. We, you know, we, we've got a queen and this is, and a big royal family and a huge royal family about to be added to in next month in July when um, we're well aware. Well, we can't wait, <laughs> can we? But look, and and this is sells magazines. It's and selling a lot obsessed. of magazines, yeah. Why do we still have a monarchy? There's, there's essentially no point to it. But you look back, I was, I was watching the Queen's Jubilee last year, six years Jubilee, and they had this wonderful sort of barge parade down the Thames. I mean, it was a horrible rainy weather, but it's still everyone lined the banks of the Thames to watch this go past. And this is a direct evocation of Edward III's Jubilee celebrations. Way oh, back in the 40s. The same, yeah, I mean, it's the same okay. thing. He was the first one guy who come up with the idea of a Jubilee. And, and, and everything about uh, the culture of monarchy and that spreads out actually from, from the royal family to a few select others. If you look at Thatcher's uh, not state funeral, but effectively they look yeah. to all intents and purposes state funeral, full of the trappings of medieval monarchy. Now, a lot of that is because the Victorians thought that the roots of Western liberty and British liberty and the, the great brilliance of the British Empire could be found in the Middle Ages, so copied it. So you look at the Houses of Parliament, Victorian, neo-Gothic. Right. You know, you could see it, yeah. Mock medieval. All the same, there still seems to be a sense that by looking at the history of the royal family right back to the Middle Ages, we can start to see how England and how Britain and how the Western policy has been formed and where it comes from. And you can see all the, all the beginnings of the fascination with royalty as well. And, and Richard II, who's the, who's the last king in this book, uh, and is the first king in English history to introduce the, the term your majesty. So it's a French term. He rather likes majesty. He likes to sort of sit in his chair and uh, whenever he looks at someone, you're supposed to sort of bow to the ground. And the floor. <laughs> this is at the point when he's gone mad, I should say. Uh, or, or, or it's in the process of going mad. And yet, actually, that, that is what That makes that sense, yeah. Uh, you don't do that? No, no actually, uh, you've been looking at me all through this interview and I haven't had to, to bow my head once. No, you haven't, um, no. That wasn't a faux pas. Uh, so, <laughs> so look, uh, the, the trappings of majesty and, and the sense of sort of imperiousness in, in government, particularly in British government, all, all stems from this, this era as well. So there's a stylistic kind of development uh, to government and to kingship and to rule that, that comes from this period too. That's so, uh, well, thank you so much. We actually, we're out of time. Oh, yeah. And uh, I want to recommend to my audience that you should get the Plantagenets. Um, Dan, you did a great job. I guess the, uh, the, the, I wanted to stress to everybody that this book reads um, not like a historical, traditional historical account, but it's, it's more like a novel and it has the stories in it. And I think the approach is, it's really refreshing, but it also makes it a lot of fun because I don't think most people would write about history the way you've written about it with the kind of details that you have, even starting with the ship coming across mm -hmm. and the drunken, you know, I mean, in the in the shipwreck and everything. So it's it's really quite extraordinary, and I suggest that everybody get it. And you can get it on Amazon. And I want to thank you for being here today. It was a lot of fun. I know it's getting a little bit warm in here, so we're gonna have to end. But you guys, 
send your comments in. I will pass them along to Dan and be sure to read the book and uh, get ready, uh, brush up on your knowledge of this portion of English history because it's fascinating. Thanks so much for joining us and we'll see you on the next episode. Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.